Mission is ultimately, the mission we're talking about this morning, it's ultimately about love-based risk. It's not risk for the sake of risk. It's not thrill-seeking. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you are so captivated by the love of the Father, so consumed with the love of Jesus for you, so infilled with the Holy Spirit that you, you're just, you love, and love looks like something, right? It looks like something. It has to go out. It can't stay in the house. It's not just something where you receive the love. And then if you just keep it in the house, it will, in many ways, die in the house. It's not meant to stay there. It's given so it can be poured out. So love facilitates love. And it was intended to be that way. It wasn't just this thing where God says, here, I'm sending Jesus to show you how much I love you. And that's the end of it. No, he sent Jesus to reveal his character, his nature, his image to us as a servant, as a lover. And then we're called to emulate Jesus, to be like Jesus, who was a servant. You are, in many, many, many cases, the only Jesus people may ever see. And so we're called to represent him well. As the Father sent him, so he has sent us. Uh, I do want to just speak quickly before I get into the message. I want to speak uh, to last week a little bit. Uh, Matt spoke to it a little bit during communion, and uh, so many things that he said were so spot on and kind of what I was already going to share. But uh, I, I told someone this week, I said it's often, uh, or it's, it's rare, I guess, in life, um, 43 now. So it's rare in life that in my 43 years that I've had expectations for something, and then they live up to it. Oftentimes you have expectations and you're like, oh, that's how it felt yesterday during the Hawkeye game for a while. And then, you know, and then it didn't until it didn't. Um, but then it's, all, it's even more rare, I feel like, when uh, you have expectations for something and you're excited and, you know, and then it exceeds those expectations. Uh, and those times are rare. And last week, last Sunday morning was one of those uh, rare times where I had high, high expectations, high hopes uh, for what would happen uh, on Sunday morning here in our building, and it went beyond that. It went well beyond uh, what I could have asked or imagined. Uh, and it's, it's amazing uh, that that happened. I've been able to already talk with so many of you this week uh, about kind of your uh, encounter, uh, your experience, uh, what moved your heart. We had so many people come forward for prayer, and I have so many uh, great stories already, and I'm looking forward. I have many other meetings scheduled with many of you uh, to hear more. If I have not, if you've been able to uh, reach out to you, or if you're someone that uh, maybe you didn't come forward for prayer, you still had an, a really powerful experience, would you please uh, email me, uh, shoot me an email, and just let me know maybe a little bit about that, or even if you want to set up a time to meet and chat more about that. What we want to do is not be like, oh man, that was incredible, and okay, cool. Uh, we kind of want to be like, oh man, that was incredible. Okay, what does God want to do now? Uh, what was God doing then? And we don't want to go back to normal. Uh, whatever normal was, it shifted last Sunday. Uh, and I really truly believe that, that it was a defining moment for our church. Something shifted and it's our responsibility then, uh, you as individuals, me as pastor, to help steward that, to help ensure that that doesn't die down, to continue to fan the flame, as Paul instructed Timothy to do. Whatever was done then, it's not intended just for a, oh, that was an incredible experience, and I've never stayed till church till 2 p.m., and that was great, but then it just goes back to regular. We don't want to do that. So it's, what does God uh, want to do going forward? I don't view last Sunday in any way, shape, or form as the top of the mountain. I view it as the base camp. That's the base camp. It's the starting point. God did something, and now he wants to lead us. Where does he want to lead us? We want to follow. So, again, if you have not, uh, if I haven't heard from you or haven't had a chance to meet with you and you had an experience, an encounter, something you felt like, you know, you came in here one way and you walked out a different way, please let me know. Please let me know. It's important that I, that I hear those stories, and Pastor Jordan and I can kind of process and pray into those and see what God may be uh, speaking to us. What, where were the common denominators, uh, if there were some, and what, what do we want to do moving forward? So that's one thing I wanted to speak uh, to you about last Sunday. The other thing I wanted to address uh, was the offering. Uh, we had asked you guys in advance uh, to give uh, a love offering 
to, to Mike and Dina. We had also told you that we as an elder team, as pastors, had committed, we were going to put $2,000 from our compassion budget uh, as the base. So anything that came in above and beyond that, we were going to make sure that was given to them. And J Pastor Jordan, when he talked about this a few weeks ago, challenged us as a congregation to hit the $5,000 mark, which for our church would be, I mean, honestly, that'd be huge, uh, huge. So we ended up hitting $12,000. Um, and so I, I say that as for so many reasons, but just to express as pastors how proud we are of the church, um, that is going to be a massive blessing to Mike and Dina. I did not tell Mike this week that that's how much we got. I just sent him the check. Uh, I want to let them just enjoy that. Um, and so uh, Jordan said to me this week, he's like, man, that would be a good offering for, that's, that's a great offering uh, for a church our size. And I'm like, that'd be a great offering for a church five times our size. Honestly, that's just incredible, your generosity. It's humbling to us. Uh, it's going to be incredibly humbling to Mike and Dina. They so, I mean, they loved you guys. They talked about how they just loved everybody. They got to pray for the church in general. They've continued to pray this week for many of you by name. Uh, so just know that, again, it wasn't a one-time thing. Uh, that It's ongoing, and we have a chance to really build and establish a relationship with them. There's some cool things happening there. So, uh, yeah, again, just blessed by your guys' generosity, and it's going to be a massive blessing to them. So, with all that being said, let's take a really hard turn here, really hard shift. I want to tell just a quick story. Uh, many, many years ago, probably like a couple decades ago and then some, maybe the late 90s, I can't remember the exact date, but some good friends of mine, uh, guys I was really tight with, but are a little younger than me, they went to, they went to um, like a church camp down in Texas. And uh, the guys that I always ran with in that age, when we went to church camp, it was usually for one reason and one reason only, and that was to, you know, wreak havoc. Uh, it was to cause some sort of mayhem, to disrupt things, uh, to do whatever. And uh, so I wasn't there with them. Uh, but when they were in this church camp in Texas, uh, early on in the week, I don't know if it was the first day or the second day, but it was very early on in over the five or six days they were going to be there, uh, on the campsite, and I don't know exactly where it was because I wasn't there. It was the story they told me. Uh, somewhere on the campsite, they came across a dead armadillo, uh, a dead armadillo. And so most people uh, would be like, that's gross. Let me call somebody. They'll come and pick this up and get it out of here. Not my friends, not teenage, teenage boys. So their first thought was, what can we do with this? So they kind of got their heads together. And they decided, all right, we have a plan. So what they did is they snuck into or went into, I don't know, to the uh, cafeteria, the kitchen there at the camp, into, and, and they grabbed a whole bunch, like a massive, you know, roll or whatever of tinfoil. And they brought the tinfoil uh, to the dead armadillo, and they wrapped that armadillo up really good, like just wrapped it up like a baked potato, you know, nice and tight. And then they found a spot on the campgrounds where they could kind of hide it, but they also had a ton of direct sunlight with no shade. So they kind of searched for a spot. And so they took this armadillo, wrapped it in tinfoil, found this spot, and they let it sit there for three days, just cooking, just baking in the sun. At the end of the three days, uh, they went, to collect the armadillo, and if, as you might imagine, it didn't smell too good. Even with the tin foil sealing it, after three days of baking, uh, it wasn't great. They picked it up. I don't know how. I, don't, I think somebody just, they're teenage boys, you know, in the late 90s. Nobody was worried about germs or anything like that. They just picked it up, and they went over uh, to uh, the communal girls' shower stall. And so... It was basically, you know, they, it had the individual stalls, but obviously there were tons of them at this campground. And they, it had the open doors. There was actually not a physical door to open. You know how that works at, like, park restrooms and, uh, and that kind of stuff, where you just kind of walk in like that. And so one of them ran in there with his eyes closed, and he just chucked it into there. And because, I don't, because it had been baking in the sun uh, for so long, the process of decomposition and all that stuff had accelerated. And so when they threw it in there, it splattered and opened up. The, I mean, it just went everywhere. So the tinfoil came off of it. And from what I understand, uh, the most horrific smell ever. So 
Has anybody ever had uh, maybe something you can relate to more than baking a dead armadillo and throwing it into a girl's shower stall? Has anybody ever had an animal somehow, and you don't even know how, but somehow get into your house, right? Any chimney, HVAC system, some through it where in your attic, somewhere in your walls, you're not even sure how it got there, and you don't realize that it's there until you start to smell it. And usually, by the time you start to smell it, that's not good. And it's going to be a mess, okay? Something came into the house, right? It came into the house. And because it couldn't get its way back out, it didn't have a way back out, it dies in the house. And when it dies in the house, it puts off an awful, terrible, disgusting smell, and there's a mess to clean up. Big statement that's not even on the screen because I just want you to listen to it. When something is released by God and it comes into the house, this church, we'll just use our church specifically, when God releases something into this house, like he did last Sunday, and we're still in the process of discovery as to exactly what that was, although I have some strong hunches, but what he, when he releases something into the house, if it doesn't have a way out of the house, it will die in the house. When God releases something into a house, if it doesn't have a way to move outside of these four walls, to move outside of this house, what will happen is it will die in the house. And when it dies in the house, it won't be neutral. It won't be like nobody notices, oh, no big deal. No, 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 no. It will, it will be unpleasant. It will be unpleasant because something that was alive, something that was there, something that was good is now dead and decaying. It's rotten. And there's a mess. We're going to come back around to that later on. We're in this series right now, as you see on the screen, called Building the House. And this is a series uh, where we're talking about the kind of culture we want to have here at New Point Church, the things that we want to set our foundation on, that we want to build on, the kind of church we want to be, that we believe, Pastor Jordan and I, that God has called us to be, that he desires of us. And so far in this series, Pastor Jordan kicked it off a couple weeks ago, talking about Jesus. We, we are focused on Jesus. That is our primary focus. We are focused on preaching the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus, lifting the name of Jesus high. We're committed to becoming more and more like Jesus through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, who we're told is conforming us to Jesus's image and likeness. And we're committed to submitting to that process and becoming more and more like him. It's all about Jesus. We don't want to get off on all these other streams and tangents and things that we could take on personality-wise as a church. We want to just focus on Jesus. It's a good thing to focus on, by the way. Then I talked a couple weeks ago that as we just go after Jesus and as we want to become more and more like him, we want to see, as he instructed us to pray, his kingdom come, the Father his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but specifically his kingdom come and his will be done in and through our lives as it is in heaven. That it's not an abstraction, that it's not some sort of like magic thing that we pray and it just happens, but no, it's real, it's tangible. That love looks like something. That we see his kingdom come, his will be done, and that we hunger for that. We talked a lot about that. I told that story of Vic Fuller, and if you didn't have a chance to listen to that message, I would encourage you to go back and check that out. But we want to have this desire. We want to come after him with all we've got, and he gives us grace to do that. The more that we do that, the hungrier we get, the hungrier we're becoming. It's a beautiful thing. He gives us the desire to go after him. And then obviously Mike and Dina came last week, and that was intentional. We placed this series building around them, and what they brought, obviously, uh, of, of so many things, but was, and they would tell you this, was radical love. Radical love. They told their story about how they were self-centered, selfish people who really didn't care about God. 
didn't care about coming to church, and they had an encounter with the love of God that transformed their lives and, lives, and what that opened up was radical love. It gave them the capacity to love, to love others, and it didn't start immediately, oh, we're going to China. It started with peanut butter and jelly. It started with a simple step of obedience, but a capacity to love, and the truth is that love facilitates love. The scriptures tell us that we love because he first loved us. In other words, our capacity to love, to become lovers of people comes directly from God. If we try to love outside of the Holy Spirit, it's not gonna work all that well. And I've talked about this many times before, but how many of you have ever tightened your fists, clenched your, gritted your teeth, and tried to love somebody that was difficult? No, it doesn't usually work. But when you have an encounter with God where you understand, number one, how much he loves you, and not just in a general sense, but how much he loves you specifically, you, and then he not only loves you, he actually likes you, which is hard for some people, and you understand that he loves you and how much he's forgiven you of, his grace in your life, it suddenly becomes easy to love others well. It suddenly becomes easy to forgive others who've hurt you. It suddenly becomes easy to love your enemies. It suddenly becomes easy not to hold grudges because you understand what you've been forgiven of. But, so love facilitates love, and it was intended to be that way. It wasn't just this thing where God says, here, I'm sending Jesus to show you how much I love you, and that's the end of it. No, he sent Jesus to reveal his character, his nature, his image to us as a servant, as a lover. And then we're called to emulate Jesus, to be like Jesus, who was a servant, who loved his enemies, who prayed for those who persecuted him, who on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're called to take the love we received this way and then bring it back out. But if we don't do this, we can't do this. This is key, but we've got to do this. And I think last Sunday, and hopefully before that even, we're starting as a church to understand this well. And that's important then if the more we understand that, the more that we move towards this. So today, the title, the focus, if you will, of, of this message is this. It's a family on a mission. Part of what we want to do in building this house is we want to view ourselves as a family on a mission. A mission is a buzzword. There's always a mission statement or a vision statement or whatever it is, whether you're in a church or a corporation or whatever it is, it's a buzzword and it can become then very like abstract or blah, or I've heard that before. Man, I just, I hate that word. So let me give it some definition and we'll get into more specifics here. So mission defined. What we're talking about right now, when I say a family on a mission, the mission that I'm defining it as this morning for our church, okay? For our church specifically, Paul gives language to in the book of Romans when he says this, Romans 15, 20 through 21. He says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Something interesting about this verse is the word ambition in the Greek has a very specific meaning, a very specific connotation to it. And you could take that word in Greek and you could reframe it in English, and this verse would read something like this. I have always loved preaching the gospel where no one knew about Jesus. I've always loved, I've always looked forward to, I've always enjoyed preaching the gospel of Jesus where nobody knew about him. I've always loved telling people about Jesus who don't know anything about him. It's part of what we want as our mission. In John 20, 21, Jesus said this to his disciples. Very simple statement as before he ascended into heaven. He said, 
as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So what the Father sent me for, the things he wanted me to accomplish, my mission, to be a representation, we're told the exact representation of the Father, to be the image of the invisible, to be the one who reveals God as the Father has sent me, all the things he sent me for, all the things he's asked me to do, the ways that he's asked me to live my life, exactly that, I am sending you. And you're like, that sounds like a big assignment. And it is. But it's reiterated throughout the New Testament. And Paul doesn't say, well, Jesus was like, I'm kind of sending you. I mean, I know you're not me. And so I don't expect you to, you know, I mean, you, it's okay. You can just kind of take it easy or whatever. No, Paul says this. He says, we have been given a ministry of reconciliation, not counting the world's sins against it. And God has given us this as if he were making his appeal to the world through us. Think about that. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation, not counting the world's sins against it, as if God was making his appeal through us. It's a significant responsibility. In another place, we're said that we are God's ambassadors. If you think about what is an ambassador, an ambassador is somebody, in the case, let's just say, of our nation who represents the United States. And if they go to a foreign country and they engage with ambassadors in that country or that country in some way, and they act ridiculous, if they act foolish, if they're hostile, if they don't represent the United States well, those people consider it an offense from our nation, Right? ambassadors can do things that are so ridiculous that they almost become declarations of war. And Paul is saying, and Jesus is telling us, that's who you are to me. You are making, I'm making my appeal through you to the world. You are my ambassador. The way that you live in and amongst those around you, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your job, in other relationships, you are representing me. See, it's something that the church has tried to shy away from for I don't know how long, mostly as long as I can remember being a part of Christianity, where the statement was something like this. It's like, well, I'm not perfect. Well, I'm not Jesus. Well, don't look at my life. Look at, look at Jesus. Don't focus on me. Focus on Jesus. And that's a cop-out. It's an excuse. It's an excuse to lower the standard of behavior that we have in our lives and not come after him with everything we've got. It's also completely contradictory to the entire New Testament, which tells us over and over again in the verses I just said, and even in others, that no, 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 no. Actually, <laughs> we are in this world as Christ was in this world. We had our series on 1 John not long ago, and John explicitly says in there, anyone who finds their life in Jesus, anyone who wants to call themselves a Jesus follower, must live in this world as Jesus did. That's, those are big statements. So we can't just say, oh, you don't look at me. Just, I'm not perfect. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a mess. Don't look at me. Just look at Jesus. No, no, no. <laughs> They're supposed to look at you to see Jesus. You are, in many, many, many cases, the only Jesus people may ever see. And so we're called to represent him well. As the Father sent him, so he has sent us. Paul even says, talking to a church in the New Testament, he says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. No, I don't know about you. I, I get to lead our, our you know, among, among the many things I am privileged to do here at this church, I get to, to lead our youth group. It's an incredible group, and I love it. Absolutely love it. And what I, what I don't want <laughs> for the 30-so kids that are in our group 30 or so kids that are in our group, how ridiculous would it be if I'm like, every time I preach the way I live my life, I'm like, guys, just, you know, um, don't, just don't worry about how I live. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about, you know, the things that I do, how I live my life. I just want you to focus on Jesus. Just do that. It just seems like a terrible way to do things. It seems like I'm setting them up for failure, setting them up for disaster, setting them up. No, I want them to say, hey, Guys, I love Jesus. I take Jesus seriously. 
I want to go after him. Now, I haven't attained everything I want, but I'm coming after him with all I've got. And I want you to live your life like I do. Some people think, well, that's arrogant. Well, I'm not doing it by myself. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that's what I want for them. Say, I've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want the same for you guys. Instead of, well, just, I'm just a messed up guy like everybody else. And, you know, yeah, just read the Bible and hope some of that sticks. No, I, they're going to they're gonna fall in love Jesus with love with Jesus by watching a life lived. Mike and Dina share these testimonies about a life lived, and it helps us fall more in love with Jesus because we see what the Christian life can actually be like, what's possible in the Christian life, instead of just saying, oh, I'm just a mess, just hold me to some low standards. No, we wanna come up. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. The good news is that as we go like Jesus, as we go forth into the world like Jesus, empowered through the Holy Spirit, we're told that heaven cheers us on, that there's a great cloud of witnesses that is watching what we do, and they are cheering for us. And that Jesus, we're told, is ever interceding on our behalf, meaning he's at the right hand of the Father. And he, did you know this, that he is praying for you? That Jesus is praying for you still actively as you go out into the world to be like him? Should encourage us that heaven cheers us on. And just like Jesus, that was about the longest intro ever, by the way. <laughs> I mean, we were here till two last week, so I mean, we've got at least till one today. So that was a lot of nervous laughter there. Um, here's the thing like Jesus, we're called to minister, we're called to go out, we are sent to the redemptive edge, the place where light confronts darkness. And we'll come back to that term I use, the redemptive edge, in a moment or a few minutes. Let me just transition a little bit with this. One of the challenges of church, this will be on the screen for you, one of the challenges of church in modern culture is that we can attend church and participate in church programs and never get to the point where Jesus' ministry is actually happening. I know it's... A, Big statement. One of the challenges of church in modern culture is that we can attend church and participate in church programs and never, never get to the point where we're actually doing the things that Jesus did and actually doing the things that Jesus called us to and he modeled for us and that he's hoping that we'll do. Another truth that kind of goes with this, it is possible to quote unquote do church and never actually do the Jesus stuff that we see in the Gospels. I, I, and I know Pastor Jordan, I can speak for him, we're, we're not interested in just doing church. And I hope none of you are either. That is such an utter waste of time because it's not what God intended for us. We're supposed to be the church, right? And what is the church? The church is the light of the world sent out, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden it's the hope of the world. It's the bride of Christ. We can do church stuff. We can come on Sunday mornings and have programs and all this kind of thing and have a whole lot of religious activity and never actually be in touch with what the heart of Jesus is. If we're going to get past this point where, you know, where we attend church and participate in programs and never get to where Jesus' ministry is actually happening, if we want to move past this place where we're doing church, but the Jesus stuff is never actually being done, if we want to do that, we have to go to this place I referred to earlier, the redemptive edge. The redemptive edge, the place where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell are fighting it out in the human heart, in the world, for supremacy. This place where the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell, kingdom of darkness, are fighting it out in individual human hearts and in the world for supremacy. Now let me define the kingdom of hell for a second because we have some weird thoughts on this in, in, in modern Christianity in the West. Okay, so when we talk about a place, the place of hell, okay, I want to be clear that hell is not a place 
where Satan reigns from, right? You see cartoons and movies and pictures, and you have these representations of hell, and Satan's down there on this throne, and he's got his pitchfork and his tail and all the horns and all that stuff, right? And that's what we think of, like, Satan is the king of hell. He is not. Hell, we're told in Scripture, is Satan's place of eternal punishment. He's not going to be reigning there. He's going to be suffering there. He is condemned to that place. There's not going to be like him giving orders or anything. It's going to be the end for him. So when I say the kingdom of hell, I just don't want you to think of it that way. What I want you to think of is places on this earth. Because we're told that he is the prince of the power of the air right now in 2021. And that there are principalities and powers and rulers and authorities in high places in which he's operating to steal, kill, and destroy. That he is actively trying to oppress those who would live for Jesus. That he's actively trying to draw the faithful away. And that he's trying to sow all these horrific things into the lives of others. That he's just trying to wreak havoc, to cause destruction, to disrupt. Whatever steal, kill, or destroy looks like, you can say that it's the kingdom of hell. That's kind of what that looks like. So the redemptive edge is the place where the light of the world, the church, the city set on the hill that can't be hidden, is battling against the enemy where he's trying to steal and kill and destroy and create hopelessness and anxiety and depression. Leslie Newbegin missionary to India said this, I think that the deepest motive for mission is simply, to be, is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. The deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. What that means is when we have an encounter with the Father, when we understand the love of Jesus, just like when you fall in love with your spouse or when you fell in love with your spouse or somebody that you love deeply, you'll go wherever they want to go, right? You're like, where, I, don't, I don't care where you're going, I'll, I'll be there. Like, you know, guys, you're like, I'll go to the opera, that's okay, right? Like, I'll sit next to you, I just want to be where you are. I love you so much that I'm going to follow you. I just have a desire, no matter what the cost, no matter what the place, what the time, it doesn't matter. I just want to be with you. And in the case of Jesus, where we find him throughout Scripture is on this frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Jesus could always be found on this redemptive edge. I mean, you cannot read the Gospels without seeing that. He was always found on the redemptive edge. Now, finally, let me give the redemptive edge a little bit of definition. It's this. The redemptive edge is the place where the works of God push directly up against the works of darkness. The redemptive edge is the place where the works of God push directly up against the works of darkness. Jesus took his disciples to this region called Caesarea Philippi, horrible, awful place that no holy person, especially a rabbi, would have ever gone. It would have just been horrible for them to even go there, right? It's like going to modern-day Las Vegas, basically. Sorry. That wasn't in the notes. So, you know, if you're a Raiders fan, I mean, that's fine, but... But he goes to this place that's horrible, this horrible place, all kinds of crazy, uh, demonic, demonic, dark stuff. And he goes to the, takes them to the place, to the place that was the darkest of all the places. It's this place where they believed that literally the underworld, the spirits of darkness, the demonic forces would exit and enter our dimension, if you will. It was this kind of cave-like place and it was called, the, they called it the gates of hell. And this is where Jesus asks Peter, who do you, or he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, through the power of the Spirit, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says famously, upon this truth, upon this rock of truth, I will build my church and what? And the gates of hell that they're standing right in front of 
the darkest of dark places that in the known world at that time, the darkest of dark places, they're standing right in front of it and says, I'm going to build my church right here. You see that place, the gates of hell, the place where you all believe that demonic forces enter and exit our world and where all these things are happening, where everybody's terrified, where these awful, awful things take place. You can't imagine a place any darker. Guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against me. The kingdom is advancing, and no matter what, it can't be stopped. The darkest darkness, we're told in John, will be as light to Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was always on the redemptive edge, and he took his disciples to this place and said, where the heart of darkness lives, that's where I'm sending you. But take heart, because it can't stand against me. It can build its gates all it wants, and we will break through. Scripture tells us that we have divine power divine power to demolish strongholds that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We don't fight with worldly weapons. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. And if we have that, we're not, we're called to go to those places, the hearts of darkness. Finding the redemptive edge is committing to to trench warfare in the spiritual realm. It's the place where the activity of the kingdom of God is the most potent. This is where Jesus' ministry took place. As the Father has sent me, I have sent you. Jesus left the comfort and the prestige of heaven and came to earth in the form of a servant to bring redemption. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus had the, every right to stay where he was. We're big on talking about our rights in this country right now. Jesus said, I had more rights than anybody. Look who I am. I gave up my rights. I gave up my privilege, my place of power, my comfort, all these things. And I was sent in the form of a servant to be a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering who became obedient even to death on a cross. Jesus left the comfort and prestige of heaven and came to the earth to bring redemption. In spite of comfort, caution, concern, and even criticism, Jesus' ministry was always found right up against darkness. Jesus was known, and this is one of the things I just, my personality, I guess, I just love about him so much, is he was always pushing boundaries. He was always challenging the establishment. He was always challenging the religious system. He was known for pushing boundaries. We can see him consistently eating with sinners. So much so that the Pharisees accused him of being a friend of sinners. You don't get called a friend of somebody because you know them a little bit or know them once or hang out with them once if you're consistently with them. A friend of sinners. He spent time with women that were off limits, that completely subverted the religious, religious rules and traditions. He recruited incredibly sketchy and or notorious disciples. If anybody watches The Chosen, they do a great job of putting this into terms in our modern context to reveal how messed up these dudes were. They were. I mean, don't forget at one point, they argued amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest. And at one point, some other guys, the same guys actually asked if they could call on fire on a city. These guys were young, immature. They were the least of the least. Jesus calls these sketchy dudes. He pardons, right, a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. He broke many cultural norms around those who were his family. At one point, Jesus is preaching, and some people come to him, and they say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are, they're asking for you. And that society family was, I mean, huge. And he says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my father completely shifts the family. Family in our country is still an idol, oftentimes. He was famously misunderstood, even to the point of wrongful death on a cross. This is what Jesus chose to do. He chose, right, to do this. He chose to be misunderstood for the sake of love. To be misunderstood for the sake of love. Jesus was always, 
also always pushing into the frontiers of darkness. He wanted to spend time in Samaria, which if you know anything about that, again, was a place that no good rabbi, no good Jew, period, would ever have gone. And he intentionally went there. And oh, by the way, the first evangelist in Scripture, the first missionary in Scripture was from Samaria, was a woman who'd had five husbands and was living with a guy who wasn't. He chose her as the first person to tell other people who he was. Think about that. He wandered in the Decapolis region, which was as pagan as pagan gets, and he cast out demons left and right, it says, with just a word. He invited himself to the house of Zacchaeus, a Jewish tax collector who was a traitor and was working for the Romans. The Great Commission itself, which is so famous, was always an extending invitation. He was always extending an invitation, inviting us as Jesus followers, as his followers, to go to the very ends of the earth. You know, the book of Acts bears witness to this, that they saw themselves sent and they went everywhere. If we have the eyes to see, if we truly have eyes to see, we'll find ourselves sent from the center of our comfort and stability to the radical and redemptive edges of our world. Let me say that again. If we have the eyes to see, we'll find ourselves sent from our center of comfort and stability to the radical and redemptive edges of the world. Here's the truth. As we keep going on this theme of mission, a family on a mission, mission is always, when it comes about this kind of mission that we defined as, as what Paul said in Romans, mission is always boundary pushing and boundary crossing for the sake of love. This is the way of Jesus. And this usually takes us away from comfort and directly into confrontation where we can be misunderstood and even criticized by others. I remember when I was a young youth pastor and our ministry was specifically, for the most part anyway, to a lot of kids that would have been considered, uh, I guess the best term back then was at risk, what everybody used back then, at risk. They had awful, awful family lives. I I could tell stories about that all day. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Problems, problems, problems. And kids like that, right, they hang out in not great places. And when you have kids that don't know Jesus and have those situations, they bring the problems of those who don't know Jesus and have bad situations. Right? Shock that they don't understand church decorum or all these things or that they don't care. Right? And I remember my, one of my best friends uh, since I was a kid, he and I had this kind of thing we were doing and uh, we would really, we would go to these specific places that were like less than reputable. We'll just put it that way, where all these kids hung out. And I remember talking to a, a pastor one time um, about how I was going to this specific place um, to, with my friends to, to hopefully meet some new kids and, and tell them a little bit about Jesus or build some relationship. And the pastor just looked at me. He was like, I don't know that he was super, super like, you know, like angry, but he was definitely upset. And he said like, well, what if one of the, what if somebody from your church or one of the, you know, kids from your youth group like saw you there? And I said, well, first of all, I want to know what somebody from my church was doing there themselves. But second of all, I'm like, I, I want them to see me there. Like, that's where they should see me. They should see me on the redemptive edge. They should see me in this place where it's the usurped dominion of the devil, where there's darkness, where it's strong. They should see me right up against the gates of hell. That's where I should be. Mission is always boundary pushing. We can be misunderstood and even criticized. We see in these steps of discipleship, which I'm going to go through here in a second, we see as we become more and more like Jesus, and this is a trajectory that, is, that I've seen in my own personal life, that I've seen in the lives of others who have gone after more. These things usually happen in this order, these steps of discipleship. We see as we get deeper and deeper into being like Jesus, we see an increasing resistance from usually... Uh, our Christian brothers and sisters, if I'm honest, uh, to being on that redemptive edge. I mean, even Jesus told the disciples, he said, I'm sending you out. And he says, the first thing he warns them about, the first thing, he says, 
you will be flogged. Anybody know this? You will be flogged in the synagogues. It says you will be beaten. That's what flogging is. You will be beaten. Where? Not in the streets. Not in some pagan place. Not in some bar. Not in some whatever. You're going to be beaten in the church. You can chew on that for a while. So as you get closer to Jesus, as you move deeper into discipleship, it kind of looks like this. We start off with this place of sort of like, it's this base level understanding where we, we kind of like love God for the sake of ourselves, okay? Like we love God because what he can do for us. This is called comfort. We're going to call this comfort. These are four C's today. I'm very, be very linear, four C's, so you can remember them all. Comfort. This is the place where Jesus never challenges you and where he simply wants you to be happy and at peace. This is what the lion's share of Christians in the West live. This is where the vast, vast majority of people exist. They call themselves Christians. They might go to church, probably. They say they believe in Jesus, but they exist in this place where Jesus never challenges them, and he simply wants them to be happy and at peace. When they receive a blessing, they think, it's Jesus is blessing me. It's just for me. I get to do, oh, that's awesome. I get to do with it what I want. Do you remember last Sunday how Mike said, you're blessed to be a blessing maybe? This is a place where you're not thinking about that, right? So this is cool. There's not going to be much resistance here at all, right? But then as you start to maybe have some encounters with God, you start to really be like, man, I should maybe, I feel like, you know, Jesus took me pretty seriously, so maybe I should take him seriously. Like, you start to move out of this place, and you're just kind of wondering. And then all of a sudden, as you start to do that, you start to ask questions and wonder what God, what God might want for your life. And you start to ask your friends, your Christian friends, like, man, I just read the Gospels, and I read the New Testament. And I'm like, there's got to be more than just sitting in a, a church seat for 90 minutes a Sunday and then going, you know, out to lunch afterwards and watching football and taking a nap and calling it good. There's got to be more than that. And then people will start to do this. They'll start to caution you. They'll start to caution you. This is where people will love your heart. They're like, that's so awesome, Josh. That's so awesome, Josh. That's cool that you're really thinking about going deeper. Like, oh, that's cool, you know. I really like that. I admire that. I respect that. But when you're not around them, they're like, ah, that dude's getting, you know, it's a little extreme. It's a little, I mean, it's a little extreme, right? He's going to think that. There might be some whispers amongst friends when you're not around. You talking to Josh lately? He's talking about all this stuff like he believes maybe like miracles still happen and we should actually pray for people to be healed. Or like, heard him say that, you know, maybe we shouldn't just like accumulate wealth as our primary goal. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I like Jesus and all, but that seems like just a little over the top. So there's this caution. And then you move from this place where you're like, I'm thinking maybe my heart's been moved this way. And then you actually take a step and you do something right? If you're, you sell your house, <laughs> you sell your house, not to move to China, you sell your house to go on a three-week temporary mission strip. Is that, that was one of the, I, did, I know so much of Mike and Dina's story, I did not know that, and I was like, what? You sell your house to go on a three-week mission strip to Africa, and then, right? This is where people start to get concerned. So we've got comfort, caution, concerned, right? We have that one, if you could pop that one up on the screen. This is where people will begin to worry about how serious you are, are you, you are, excuse me, about taking what Jesus said and putting it into action. They're like, you're becoming a radical. You're becoming on the edge there. You're becoming a little too extreme. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe that he, you know, went up to that guy in the grocery store and said, I really feel like the Lord wanted me to pray for you. I mean, that's, oh my gosh, in public? It's so embarrassing. Can't believe that, you know, he doesn't want to do X, Y, and Z anymore because he instead, you know, he wants to go to a Bible study or he wants to go and volunteer for the food distribution or he wants to go downtown and look for maybe homeless people. I can't believe, I mean, that's just crazy, you know? So they start to get concerned, right? And at this point, it's still pretty innocuous, right? Like, you know, you're comfortable, and then you start to move out, and people are like, take it easy, Josh, take it easy. And then they're like, they get that furrowed brow. They're really concerned. And then when you start to really go all in, 
and you're just like after it, this is when the criticism starts. This is when people that had been supporting you earlier will now start to be actively against you. The more that you become like Jesus, and the more that your mind <laughs> is renewed and transformed, and the less you start, the less you conform to the patterns of this world, the more you will come into conflict and you will receive criticism. Not from those in the world. Maybe a little. Usually it's from people in the church oftentimes. They'll start to actively be against you. You may lose friendships. It's something that's important to know as we keep going. It's imperative that we remember that it wasn't bravado, right? It wasn't ambition in the like classical Western sense. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't pride. It wasn't like anything like that that drove Jesus to the edge of darkness. It was radical love. It was radical love. Jesus is the good shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep to find the one. God's the good father who waits longingly for his prodigals to return home. And when they do, he's been waiting for them all along. And he doesn't wait for them to get to the house. He runs, makes a fool of himself. Our call is to have Jesus's love. That's what, that's what our culture here, we want to be all about Jesus. We want to have a hunger. We want to see his kingdom come. If we're going to be all about him, if we're going to have a hunger, if we're going to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, the only way that's going to happen, the literally, the only way it's going to happen is if we are possessed by the love of Jesus. And I mean, I mean that. If we are overtaken, if we are consumed, if we are set aflame by the love of Jesus, if we try to effort it, if we try to just do one more better thing on our own, it might work for a little while, but I promise you it won't. You won't be able to sustain it. But when you are consumed with the radical love of the Father, you, you don't have to even effort. Things just pour out of you. And that's the kind of love that Jesus had that pushed him to move past comfort and caution and concern. And he had a ministry that was actually defined by criticism and willingness to go into the darkness. Here's the truth. Mission is ultimately, the mission we're talking about this morning, it's ultimately about love-based risk. It's not risk for the sake of risk. It's not thrill-seeking. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you are so captivated by the love of the Father, so consumed with the love of Jesus for you, so infilled with the Holy Spirit that you, you just you love, and love looks like something, Right? It looks like something. It has to go out. It can't stay in the house. It's not just something where you receive the love. And then if you just keep it in the house, it will, in many ways, die in the house. It's not meant to stay there. It's given so it can be poured out. The scriptures speak to how love is what compels us forward. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, For Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us. The word compelled there in the Greek is a, a word that's basically like, um, like some of you described your experience last Sunday when Mike and Dina had uh, the call to come forward. Some of you have told me like, I almost didn't want to go, but like I felt like I couldn't stop myself. That's kind of the same word. It's like the love of Christ is so much in us that like we're, we're just moved sometimes without even knowing, but it's just in us. Because we, believe, we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, this is so key, so key. And he died for all that those who live, and this is the part that so many people miss, and he died for all, yes he did, we talk about that. Why? That those who live, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So many of us, so many people are thankful that Jesus died for them, and that's great, but they miss the reason why. It's not just so you can go to heaven someday when you die. In fact, for the first three centuries of Christianity, that was almost like a, like that they were like, that's amazing, but, but we've got work to do. 
That's just a blessing that we'll receive then. But our job now is heaven on earth. He died for us. Why? That we should no longer live for ourselves but for him. We want to do this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Thanks for bearing with me. We just got a few more minutes. Paul says this, this also happens to us when we're motivated by love, when Christ's love compels us, when we're drawn out. It often comes at great cost to us for the sake of the mission of God. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Man, this is so, right now, antithetical to what you're hearing in the culture and mostly, oftentimes, if not, I mean, the vast majority of from the church. I've got rights, I'm free. It's a free country, I can do what I want, I can act how I want. You can't tell me what to do, you can't tell me how to do anything, and I understand some of that. But the problem is that bleeds over. It bleeds over way too much into how we've lived the rest of our lives. Paul's like, I'm free, I have rights, I belong to no one. I mean, he was a Roman citizen. He could do about whatever. I have made myself, though, a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Though I'm not under the law, I'll do it. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Then he goes on, so as to win those not having the law. Then this part, to the weak, I become weak. To win the weak. When's the last time you thought to yourself, man, maybe it's time for me to become weak so I can win the weak. What does that look like, I wonder, Jesus? And you prayed into that. I've become all things to all people. And I do this all for the sake of the gospel. As we look forward, we have to be aware of what could hold us back. The American theologian Francis Schaeffer pointed to two things that would stop mission, as we define it today, preaching the gospel, those that don't know it, radical love, becoming weak to the weak so that we can win the weak, becoming slaves so that we might win people. He pointed to two things, and we have this on the screen. Francis Schaeffer pointed to two things that would stop mission. First one, maybe I delete there. Maybe I delete it anyway. Personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. When we sidestep this all-encompassing mission of God and narrow down all of our concerns and energy to these two things, this is not a neutral way of life. It's not okay. It, it ends up being demonic. When all we're focused on is personal peace and affluence, it's not neutral, guys. It's not personal peace, as you see on the screen, is where we're asking the questions, am I good? Like, am I good? I got my 401k. Is that set up? Do I got my other stuff over here? Is everybody taking care of? Do we have all we need? Do I have the stuff that I want? Am I good? Are the people really close to me? Are they good? And there's nothing wrong with those things. The problem is when that's what you're, that's all it, it is. It stops there. Affluence is asking, do I have enough? Do my people have enough? So you're super self-concerned. The problem here that's the trick, right, when it comes to am I good or my people good or do I have enough or do my people have enough, the problem here is your definition of enough, usually you're entrusting to yourself. You're deciding for yourself what enough is based on really what comes down to an arbitrary standard, right? You're like, and I, and I don't, I'm not trying to be overly specific. I'm just giving you an example, but you're like, you know, well, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't have too much because I only make 300000 a year, but my friend makes 500000 I mean, they're rich. Like, I'm not. I mean, they, you know, it's, see how arbitrary that can be? And I'm just using random figures. I'm just saying. Brennan Manning had this to say about what can dull our missional approach. And Tim, if you want to go ahead and just come on up and play here. Brennan Manning had this to say about what can dull our missional approach. Love Brennan Manning. This is powerful. If you maybe just get one thing today, take a picture of this. 
because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say rather than what it does say. The word no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our souls. It no longer sweeps like a wild storm into the corners of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates like sharp lightning in the dark recesses of our hearts and minds. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattern of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant past. We read the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say. When we do that, it's a theological term is called eisegesis. It means we read ourselves into it. We go in with preconceived ideas and we take scriptures and shape them so they can align with what we already believe. Instead of going into it and saying, man, what do you want to speak to me, Jesus? I'm guessing that if I read this today, Jesus, that it's going to confront something in me. What is that? Because I want more of you. I don't want to hold on right, to my beliefs. We, we have our beliefs, but I don't want my beliefs. I want God. The invitation is to take the words of Jesus at face value, to obey the Great Commission, and to risk and to go. Here's the final truths as we finish off. All radical love will seem unreasonable to a lukewarm culture. All radical love will seem unreasonable to a lukewarm culture. All sacrifice will seem extreme in a time of comfort. But the invitation is to let the love of Christ compel you to go to the darkest places of our culture and bring light and hope and grace and truth. The invitation is to live a missional life what started last week, the lightning of burdens, encounters of love, understanding who, more of who God is, it can't stay in the house or it will die here. It has to be let out. And the way we let it out is to going to the redemptive edge. So what will you do? What will you do? You are loved by God. You are loved by Jesus. You have been given the Holy Spirit. You are his ambassador. What will you do? What will you do to shine your light in the darkness? Will you go to those places, the redemptive edge, where you see the kingdom of God butting up against the dominion of darkness and the war going on? Will you go to those places? And I'm not talking about starting an orphanage in China. I'm talking about maybe for some of you in your own home. Sometimes it's easier to love those outside of the house than it is in the house. What will you do? Where will you go? What will you allow God to do in your life? Will you take his love and not just keep it for yourself? Will you open your arms and share it with the world that so desperately needs it? And here's the truth. You may have to drive. Remember that? You may have to drive. I don't have any practical steps as to how to go about this. I just know that we need... <laughs> to receive the love of the Father, then we need to give it away. We need to not use excuses anymore about why people shouldn't look at us. They should look at Jesus. We, should, we, we can't do that anymore. It's time for us to rise up as a church, as a beautiful bride, to step in, to live lives worthy of the calling we have received. I don't wanna do church. I wanna live as Jesus lived and walk as he walked. And I'm told that I can do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me here? I'm not even gonna ask for hands to be raised or any kind of anything like that. I'm just gonna pray a prayer that all of us would be consumed by his love. And we're gonna go from there.
Last week was not the top of the mountain by any stretch. It was the base camp. It was the beginning. It was the place from which all, so many things God wants to do in this church, they just start there. It's home base. We can't keep what was released in the house in the house. We have to release it. In order to release it, we have to be consumed with his love. So Jesus, I pray for every single person in this room right now, every single person watching at home, every single person who will watch this at a later time, every single person, that they would be consumed by your love, Jesus, that you would put your heart in them, that you would take out any, of, any hearts of stone that exist and you would replace them with the heart of love that you would make us a church of radical lovers who live on the redemptive edge, a church that isn't afraid of getting out of comfort, a church that isn't afraid of people who may caution us or can be concerned or even criticize us, but that we would move in step with you, that we would go where you want us to go, that we would follow you wherever you lead us, not a couple of us, our church as a whole, everybody, consumed with your love that when people start to visit this church, when they walk through those doors, the first thing they would feel is that they, the presence of you and the presence of your love. Let us be known for that. Those who shine light in darkness. Jesus, lead us, give us dreams, give us visions, give us desires, give us ideas of what we might do. Not just amongst the leadership, but everybody here. Even people who are hearing this this morning and think they're the least likely person to ever do anything. Let them remember that that was also Mike and Dina. God, I believe you want to use the least likely. I know that for a fact because you chose me to be a minister of your word. And so fill us with your love. Let us not leave from this place just the same. Let us leave filled up, overflowing, that we have to give it out. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.